All right. Well, the basic announcements really haven't changed over the last uh, <clears throat> week or so. Uh, Chafer Seminary begins its uh, spring registration next Monday. And uh, if you are a member here, you get to take up to two courses, tuition-free. And then our annual congregation comes up in February. And registration's open for the Chafer Pastors Conference, which will be March 6th through 8th. And uh, that's going to be an important conference for everybody to come to because you need to know what's actually going on with a lot of scholarship, important scholarship dealing with the Word of God. So that we're going to have three great speakers with Randy Price, uh, Henry Brown, who's with um, Associates of Biblical Research. He is in charge of the uh, excavation at Shiloh, which has been going on for four or five years, and they've uncovered a tremendous amount of stuff. And then... Um, uh, Doug Petrovich. So we got a great slate of people coming up. <clears throat> How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. And one thing you can put in your uh, prayers is that on Sunday, actually I'll start with Saturday night, I got an email uh, from Mitch Glazer, who's the president of Chosen People Ministries. And that is a ministry formerly known as the American Board of Missions to the Jews. And I met him, got to know him, and we got to become friends about six or seven years ago at the uh, pre-trib conference. And he sent me an email, and he said one of their staff members, who is a Messianic Jew, a believer, uh, has grown children who are not believers, but they are investigating Christianity, and they were in Houston and wanted to come to a service, Christian service, on Christmas morning. So I had planned to do what I did on Christmas morning in terms of the whole series, as you know, so I had no idea, but it was absolutely perfect a topic in talking about the prophecies of the birth of Jesus and the um, and the fulfillment. And so uh, the son did not make it, but the daughter did, sat back over here. And so she heard the gospel. And again, but heard a lot of good convincing truths from the scripture. And so she, her dad emailed me later and said that she was... Uh, had a, you know, really liked the teaching and she had some questions about some things. So I gave him some background <coughs> information. So just pray for her and, um, and the brother that they can uh, come to a clear understanding of the gospel and uh, trust in the Lord. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so everyone can make sure they're in right relationship with the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's such a great privilege we've had to celebrate the birth of our Savior, the first advent, the incarnation. And, Father, we know that there were many people, some here, some at other congregations who heard the gospel, and we pray that the Holy Spirit would just use that to work on them. And even though it may take weeks or months or maybe years, we pray that that would uh, bring about the uh, rebirth of those individuals as they trust in Christ as their Savior. Now, Father, we pray for us as we come together to study your word tonight and coming to understand some basic things that are fundamental to understanding Scripture and understanding what is going on in this next section with Samson. We pray that we can understand these things and get a clearer picture of what is being said in the Scripture. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, we are in Judges chapter 13. And we did not make a lot of progress last time because we're dealing with four important background 
uh, issues that must be understood to really understand what's going on in the passage and in the text. So we looked at two of them last time. Uh, we looked at the, the issue of who are the Philistines because the Philistines are the enemy that are being, that the Israelites are being oppressed by in this Samson cycle and they will not be delivered from the Philistines. So we're asking the question, who were they? Because there's a lot of controversy and uh, discussion about just exactly who they were. And I covered that last time. And then we also covered uh, the significance of Samson's mother being barren, and that fits within a pattern in the Scripture. So we talked about that. And then this, this evening we're going to look at the angel of the Lord and who is the angel of the Lord. And then we're going to talk about this Nazarite vow. So actually that's going to take us down through uh, verse uh, 6 and 7. So we are making some progress. We've been studying through Judges. There are six major Judges, six cycles. Each cycle is worse than the one before. So there's a deterioration that takes place. Because the people have rejected God, they've rejected the truth, they are living on the uh, false religions of the Asherah and the Baals and the failure, as in all religions except for Christianity, the uh, absolute breakdown of the creator-creature distinction, as we discussed er earlier. And so you go through these five, and what they all have in common is that there is a deliverance from the foreign enemy that is oppressing Israel. But one of the things that is distinctive about Samson is when it, when Samson dies, the Philistines are still oppressing Israel. And that's the circumstance in at the beginning of 1 Samuel, which has as the last and final judge Samuel the prophet. So we, we've we studied Samuel in the past, and that that takes takes us up to this point. After we finish the Samson uh, narrative and we go to chapter 17, the last few chapters of Judges uh, are talking about the people and how the people and the priesthood have become so, uh, so corrupted. And this is what happens, and this is a lot of what we see in our own culture. And so we'll finish up Samson. Now I ran across something. I've referred to this before, but I thought I would put this up as just a reminder today that we live in the same kind of culture that existed in Israel during this time of the judges, a culture where, for the most part, God has been rejected. The revelation of God in the scriptures has been rejected. Christ has been rejected, just another man, another... Uh, he might have been a good guy and a moral teacher, but most people don't know him, and a lot of people today have never heard the name of Jesus other than as some sort of profanity. And last year, the American Worldview Inventory, uh, conducted by George Barna, who is a well-known uh, Christian evangelical pollster who has really good information, um, and he, and he's also working now with the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University, that they had conducted this survey, and it revealed that a majority of today's parents who are millennials, they are your, they may be your grandchildren, or uh, if you're a little younger, your children. Um, the, today's parents don't possess a biblical worldview. Now, if you were a baby boomer, then your parents probably had pretty close to a theistic or biblical worldview. If you were uh, a late baby boomer, which means you, you're born between 1960, 1964, you're caught up in that transition where you were taught more of a postmodern worldview as you were growing up in the 70s and 80s, and that then began to dominate. And so it's gotten worse with each successive uh, generation. So that what uh, Barna found out was 94% of parents of preteens possess a worldview known as syncretism. Now, it doesn't matter that 50% 
or I think it's higher than that, it's about 65 or 70 percent, it's come down a little bit, of Americans believe there is a God. But what do they mean by God? That's the important thing, define G-O-D. And they 94 percent hold to a worldview known as syncretism. That means they pick from various worldviews, such as Marxism, such as existentialism or nihilism or... Um, you know, some form of modernism, and they pick and choose what they like. You know, there's no uh, universal organizing structure to it, and because they're postmodern, they're not at all concerned about uh, things that are consistent. So they hold to things that are mutually contradictory because what matters is as what they want to be right. Every, it's the main theme of judges, which is everyone do, does what's right in their own eyes. And I was uh, just sort of channel surfing the other day, and I was ran across a one of those Christmas Hallmark movies. And uh, I was just catching the end of it, and one of the uh, stars in it kind of caught my attention, and I just watched it, just a small clip of it, but she was facing some sort of crisis in her life, love crisis, of course. And she was being offered a job on the West Coast, and while she was back home visiting her parents, she met a guy and was falling in love. And so she just was torn, what am I going to do? And she goes to her mother and just, she's, Mom, she's got tears in her eyes, and her mother says, just follow your heart. Your heart knows what's best. That is so postmodern. It's all about your heart, which the Bible says your heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? So turn to your little black heart, your perverted little rebellious heart, and let it determine what's right or wrong. Well, you know, 90 99.9% of whatever your heart says you want to do, it's just coming from your sin nature. And so it's always going to be wrong. There's no absolute except what you think uh, think is right. And then, you know, as the storyline progressed a little bit through a couple of scenes, and then she's talking to this new love of her life, and she they kiss for the first time. And afterwards she said, well, I just got tired of waiting for the universe to do something. Another clear example of pantheism and postmodernism. You don't have a personal God. You don't make decisions on the basis of prayer to a God who is uh, in charge of things and who has revealed his will to us. You don't search the scriptures as to the right thing to do. You just look inside your deceitful little heart, and then you wait for the impersonal pantheistic universe to somehow do something. That's where we are today. That is it in a nutshell. And if you carefully watch a lot of these films... That's pretty much it. They have Christmas movies that never talk about Jesus. How can it be a Christmas movie without talking about Jesus? So that's where we are. 94% of parents of preteens possess a worldview known as syncretism, a blending, uh, which is a blending of multiple worldviews in which no single life philosophy is dominant. And only a sparse 2% of these millennial parents of preteens have a biblical worldview. The generation that are preteens now that will be adults in 20 years or less are the ones who are going to be voting and the ones who are going to be teaching our children, and it's just going to be an absolute chaos. You think it's bad now? Just wait. I keep telling people this. You think it's so bad now that the rapture's just around the corner. It's been worse. It's been, it was worse in the Old Testament. It's been worse many times in the church age in the last 2,000 years. And as bad as we think it is in our country, it's much, much, much worse in a lot of other countries. And I hate to burst your bubble, but it's not going to get better. And we have to shine his lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. He goes on to say, It seems that most preteen parents are unaware or certainly unfazed by the contradiction between calling themselves Christian 
but living in ways that repudiate the teachings of Jesus and the principles of the Bible. And I'd rephrase it, I'd say, but they think in ways that repudiate the teachings of Jesus and the principles of the Bible. They may be born again, but they are not ever taught anything. There's no biblical instruction anywhere. So that's where we find ourselves, and that's where Israel was when God was preparing them for Samson. We saw in verse 1, again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Notice evil is always defined with reference to God's absolutes. It's not evil in the sight of man. It's evil in the sight of God. You have to understand the Lord and his essence to understand what is right and what is wrong. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years as part of the fourth cycle of discipline. So we have to understand who the Philistines were. So first I went through this timeline to show that Jephthah, who is the judge on the Transjordan side, on the east side, and Samson is down the southwest, and they overlap each other. Their lives overlap each other. And then Samuel is born before either Jephthah or Samson dies, and Samuel is the last of the of the prophets. So it gives you a look at the uh, where how this fits together chronologically. The Ammonite oppression that Jephthah dealt with, the Philistine oppression continued until uh, until David finally dealt with it, which is not on this on this chart. Saul becomes king up ten seventy five to ten eleven, and then David becomes king, and the Philistine oppression isn't really. Uh, settled until David be, David becomes becomes king. It just just continued. So we looked at who the Philistines were and the four background questions. Who are the Philistines? Number one, number two. What is significant about a barren woman in the scriptures? And third, who is the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh? And fourth, what's a Nazarite vow? So we looked at the Philistines. And saw that according to Genesis 10, the Philistines were descendants of of Noah's son Ham. Had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And they were Hamites and not Japhethites. Greeks are Japhethites. So you have uh, recognition by scholars of the migration of sea peoples. But these are people that are all coming out of of what we'd call today modern Greece and also areas of uh, Anatolia or Tur- ancient, I mean, or modern Turkey. But you have, that's what the red line represents. There were these, this group called the Philistines who migrated to Crete, and there's a blending of them later on. So there's an early migration. That's Abimelech in, during the time of Abraham, and he's over here, um, in the southeastern part of of uh, Judea, and then later there are you know there's 800 years that goes by, and there's still a lot of immigration, legal and illegal, going on at that time, and you end up with uh, a predominantly Greek culture, but they've absorbed a lot of Semitic culture, so they're a real um, they're just a, a real blending of different different groups. This is the map on the right-hand side showing the five cities, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Gath. Those are the five cities of the Philistines. This is the area that uh, we see with uh, where Samson is going to be uh, operating. So in verse 2 we read, Now there was a certain man from Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. So we looked at the scriptures about barren women and saw that there are uh, six women identified as as barren. There's Sarai, and then there was Rebecca, Isaac's wife. Uh, Sarah was Abraham's wife. And then uh, Rachel was uh, Jacob's wife, his second wife, and she was barren. And then we come to Judges... um, uh, 13, and we have the mother of of uh, Samson, and then later Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. All of these look forward to and anticipate uh, the 
virgin birth because their picture that they have is of the barren womb is of the barren spiritual life in, in Israel. And there's only God can bring life where there is death. And he will do that in the virgin's womb where she has not yet uh, had sexual intercourse with her husband. And so there God will bring life where there's never been uh, the possibility of life. And so that teaches us that God, only God can solve the problem of our of our spiritual uh, spiritual death. So that's a, that's the issue with the barren woman, and God is going to bring life where there is no life in Samson's mother. We don't know her name; she's never named in Scripture. And we ended with Judges thirteen three. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, "Indeed, now you are barren." and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. You know, it strikes me, by the time we get to Samson, we see how women have really been um, uh, denigrated in the culture. That's what happens in paganism. Don't recognize the value of women, the value of a wife, and so the the Holy Spirit's making this point. She's not named. And he's making this point that in this culture, uh, she's not really important. And that's what happens. We're going to see Samson is a womanizer. He He treats, he doesn't treat any woman in his life with respect. And this is what comes out of out of paganism. And we see the destruction of true biblical femininity in the scriptures today uh, because of all of the, uh, you know, for, for the last 40 or 50 years in terms of the modern feminist movement, it's been all about giving women positions and privilege and getting special athletics for them and everything else. And then we come along and we get this gender confusion. And the next thing we know, we're let, they're, they're, the left is all about letting uh, men go through sex change, change their gender identity to a woman and let them compete against women. And it's absolutely destroyed everything that was gained for women in the last 50 years. And it's going to get worse. That's what happens under paganism when there's no absolutes and no value. So now we need to understand who the angel of the Lord is. What does the Bible teach about the angel of the Lord? Uh, there are good sections on this in Chafer's Systematic Theology, as well as a book by Reynolds Showers. I quote him a couple of times called Those Invisible Spirits. Reynolds Showers for years was sort of the resident theologian for Friends of Israel, and he had a column in all of their uh, journals o- over the years, and he developed Alzheimer's some years ago, I believe, and then he just went to be with the Lord three or four years ago. His nephew, Jim Showers, has been the president of Friends of Israel for a, a number of years, and I've had uh, the privilege of meeting him, knowing him uh, pro- through pre-trib, and also ran into him in Israel a few times, and uh, he's extremely solid. So uh, that's sort of a little bit of background on resources you can go to on the angel of the Lord. The other thing is you're going to run into Christians who don't understand that the angel of the Lord is not an angel, but is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And it may surprise you that I got into theological discussions when I was in junior high and high school, but this was one of the first ones I got into with a man who was a real mentor in many, many ways and uh, was a friend of mine, and, and uh, God's will was to take him home when he was in his early 40s with brain cancer. But um, we got into uh, some lively discussions about the identity of the angel of the Lord, which forced me to go do a lot of studying and reading when I was probably about 15 years old to demonstrate what the, what the scriptures, scriptures said. I never convinced him, though. The title in the Hebrew is Malach, Yahweh. Malach is the Hebrew word for messenger. The Greek word for messenger is angelos. So what this means is the messenger of the Lord. And it focuses on the role of this particular individual. He is one who 
communicates something, communicates a message. There's another way to speak of one who communicates a message, and that is, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Word is what we need to put together to have a message. And so this is uh, the, the role of the messenger of Adonai. He is a supernatural being who either appeared or to or verbally spoke to uh, human beings in numerous situations. And many people, because he's called an angel, and we've turned angel into so, sort of a technical term for a supernatural class of sentient beings that God created uh, before Genesis 1.1. Why do I know that? Because in Job 38, it says that the sons of God, which is a term for angels, sang for joy when God laid the foundations of the earth. So they were witnesses to the creation. They're not, they're not created after Genesis 1-1. They were created before that. So this is, uh, but, but when you look at them as a, a angel as a technical term for that class of beings, and then you read angel of the Lord, a lot of people think, well, this is just a special angel like Gabriel or Michael, but it's not. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have to see what the Scripture says about that. The first commandment, just for background, just to remember this, the first commandment to Israel is the Lord saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods besides me. Judges 6, 8, we have the Lord sending a prophet to the children of Israel. It says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you out from, up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. So the Lord God of Israel brought them out, but we are also told that this, that the Lord God of Israel had appeared earlier to Moses in Exodus 3 verse 2 as the angel of the Lord. That's what we see in a lot of passages. You'll see a passage start to talk about the angel of the Lord, and in the next verse or two, the writer refers to the angel of the Lord as God or as the Lord. And the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon, and then the next verse, and the Lord said. Well, where did the Lord come from? I thought it was the angel of the Lord. No, the Lord is referring to who the angel of the Lord is. So there are a couple of other phrases that are used to describe this individual. The angel of Yahweh is the primary one, and there's a number of references there. We're going to look at most of them as we go through this summary. Genesis sixteen seven and Genesis sixteen nine through eleven and twenty two eleven is the angel of the Lord appears and reconfirms the covenant with Abraham. So we're going to work through those, and we'll see other passages where, for example, Hagar will will talk to uh, will have the angel of the Lord will appear to Hagar and she refers to the angel of the Lord as the angel of God, and also in this passage, the angel of the Lord appears to the mother of Samson in verse 3, and then when she uh, describes him to uh, her husband, she refers to the angel of the Lord as the angel of God. So that many times in these passages, the angel of God, the angel of Elohim, is just another title for this same individual. And then the captain of the army of the Lord, that is the captain of the host of the Lord who appears to Joshua, is also identified as the angel of the Lord. So those are three designations of this same individual in the Old Testament. So we'll just kind of walk our way through these passages. Genesis uh, 21, 17 uh, you, he says that God heard the voice of the lad, that is Ishmael, and then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard your voice. So you have this interplay between God or the angel of God. Verse uh, Genesis 31.11 uses angel of God again. 
speaking to Jacob and otherwise will be identified contextually as the angel of the Lord. Judges 6.20 in the Gideon narrative, where it's been the angel of Yahweh previously in the passage, and now it's the angel of God. And then in this passage, in verse 6, when uh, Samson's mother reports to her husband, she says, A man of God came to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God. Very awesome, but I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me. It's interesting that when the angel of the Lord or the angel of God appeared to people, they knew who it was, pretty much. Sometimes, like with Gideon, there was some some question, and afterwards he realizes who it was. And my point there is that when God shows up, he has a self-authenticating presence. You don't just say, who are you, God? You're like Isaiah. You fall down on your face, and you say, woe is me. God's presence and God's word is self-authenticating. So we have the episode with the angel and Hagar. Hagar was Sarah's uh, handmaiden, her slave, that they had picked up in Egypt when a famine came into the land of Israel. And Abraham said, well, let's go down to Egypt because they don't have a famine there. And... uh, they went down there and they acquired this uh, slave for Sarah. Don't tell anybody they'll cancel Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. Isn't that interesting? That same promise is made by Yahweh earlier. So now the angel of Yahweh makes the same promise about the seed that was made to Abraham by God and uh, also by the angel of the Lord. Later, three verses later, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Wait a minute. The one who spoke to her in 1610 is called the angel of the Lord. But the one who spoke, when that's referred to, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her You are the God who sees, for she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? In other words, she recognizes that the angel of the Lord is the Lord who spoke to her. Further, the angel of the Lord said he would multiply her descendants, which only God can do and which only God had promised. Second, she called the angel, you are the God who sees. And see, Moses, who wrote it, said she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. So Moses recognizes that the one she's speaking about, the angel of the Lord, is the Lord. She recognized that the angel of the Lord was the Lord, And so he's full deity. Third, the angel of the Lord and Abraham. In Genesis 22, 11 to 18, this is a very important passage. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. So this is the scene where Abraham has been told by God earlier in the chapter that he is to take his son his only son, the son who is the child of promise from the covenant, the one through whom the seed is going to, the descendants of Abraham are going to be blessed and that they are going to uh, be an innumerable multitude. And God appears to Abraham and says, I want you to take your son, your only son, to Mount Moriah. And there I want you to sacrifice him to me. Now, a lot of my people say, well, you know, isn't God kind of inconsistent here calling for a sacrifice? They miss the whole point. This is a test. God never, never is going to um, allow Abraham to sacrifice him. Abraham had reached a point of spiritual maturity, according to Hebrews 11, where Abraham was now willing to trust God. If God said, this is the one through whom the seed will come, then I'm going to believe that that's true, 
And if I kill my son, God's going to bring him back to life. So Abraham was relaxed and trusted God because he knew God could, life and death is not difficult for God, and God could bring him back. So he fully trusted God. And just as he is about to slice Isaac's throat, the angel of the Lord calls to him from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham said, I'm here. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from who? Me. The angel of the Lord says, you haven't withheld him from me. Well, God is the one who gave the command. So for the angel of the Lord to say, You're, you, you have not withheld your only son from me, that tells us the angel of the Lord has to be God or, or it doesn't make any sense. So the angel of the Lord is the Lord. In verse 13, Abraham lifted his eyes and God had provided a ram caught in the thicket and as a substitute sacrifice for Isaac. And he offered up the lamb as a burnt offering. And then Abraham called the name of the place Yahweh Yireh, the Lord will provide. Great principle to remember that God provides. And so he doesn't say the angel of the Lord provided. He says the Lord provided. And it's the mount of the Lord, Genesis twenty-two fifteen. 15. Back up. 15 says, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abram a second time out of heaven, and he said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord. Hmm. It's the angel of the Lord called to Abraham in verse 15, and he said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord. So it's the angel of the Lord who is identified as the Lord, the one who is speaking, in verse 16. And then he says in verse 17, reiterates the Abrahamic covenant, Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants, your descendant, I left that S in there, I should have taken it out. Your descendant, referring to the Messiah, shall possess the gate of his enemies. Most translations say their enemies, but it's a third-person masculine singular pronoun, which is not there. That's a plural pronoun. It's a his enemies. And the, the first part is talking about all of the descendants of Abraham. But the last part, that word for seed, can be either singular or plural like our word deer. And there it should be translated as a singular because the pronoun is a third-person masculine singular pronoun. And then in verse 18, he says, In your seed, that is the messianic seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So this is the angel of the Lord who is the Lord talking. So the angel of the Lord spoke to uh, Abram because I know... You fear God because you have not withheld your only son from me, and it is, going back to 22.1, I've already pointed this out, God tested Abram. And it's God who tested Abram. The angel of the Lord called himself the Lord and identified himself as the one who made the Abrahamic covenant. And so that takes us to the fourth point. The angel of the Lord in Jacob in Genesis 31.11-13 Then the angel of the Lord spoke to me in a dream. This is Jacob telling the story and saying to him, the angel of God says, Jacob. And Jacob says the same thing Abraham said, here am I. And he said, that is the angel of God said, lift your eyes now and see all the rams which leap on the flocks are streaked, speckled and gray spotted for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. And then he says, the angel of the Lord says, I am the God of Bethel. Pretty clear. The angel of the Lord claims to be God. Genesis 28, uh, 28, 16. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. That's when he was uh, camping out with the rock as, rock as his pillow at Bethel. 
hopefully on the Israel trip, we'll be able to go by there. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? There is none other than the house of God. So those are all related to the same place, and he named that place Bethel, previously known as Luz. You have the episode of wrestling uh, with the angel. Jacob was left alone. A man wrestled with him, and this man is the angel of the Lord. And uh, Jacob is unable, or the angel of the Lord, they're unable to get out of a deadlock, and so the angel touches the socket of Jacob's hip, knocks it out of joint, dislocates his hip, and uh, says, let, let him go. And he says, what's his name? Jacob. And God gives him a new name, Israel, for you have struggled with men and have prevailed. And so uh, this is the identified in the passage as the angel of the Lord. And then later in Hosea 12, 3 through 5, it's referred to as the angel of the Lord. Um, as uh, with Isaac... I mean, with Esau and Jacob, says he took his brother by the heel in the womb. That's Jacob. Uh, he took his brother by the heel in the womb, and in his strength he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel, the angel of the Lord. So Hosea says that that's who Jacob was struggling with in Genesis. He struggled with the angel of the Lord. He wept and sought favor from him. He found him in Bethel. There he spoke to us. That is the Lord God of hosts. So the Lord God of hosts is the angel of the Lord. These are just different titles for this manifestation, this theophany, actually a Christophany. It's a pre-incarnate Christ uh, that appears to the um, uh, these early patriarchs in Genesis. And in the New Testament... There's a clear identification of the angel of the Lord with the Son. Now, the term Son is a technical title, comes out of the Old Testament, showing that God had a Son. It's a designation of the second person of the Trinity that relates to the role. It's somewhat anthropomorphic because it re relates the role of the second person of the Trinity to that is analogous to that of a son uh, to his father. So the first person of the Trinity is God the Father. So in the Old Testament, God has a son. It's indicated in several places. Reynolds Showers, who I mentioned earlier in his book, Those Invisible Spirits Called Angels, said in the Old Testament, references to God's having a son are very significant because the term son signifies that a son has the same nature as his father. For example, you have idioms like the like a son of Belial, and that means Belial is, refers to that who is uh, destructive, chaotic, and that's it's not saying his father's Belial, but that he has those characteristics of Belial. Other passages usually aren't translated this way in, into English. Uh, talk about a son of a murderer. And it doesn't mean that he is, that that person's father was a murderer, but that he has the characteristics of a murderer. He is a murderer. Or you might have someone identified as a son of a fool. Doesn't mean his daddy's a fool. It means that he has the characteristics of a fool. So when someone is the son of God, that is the, saying that he has all of the characteristics of deity. He has the same nature as the father. So in the Old Testament and in the writings of post-biblical Judaism, the Hebrew words for son were often used to denote the relationship which determines the nature of a man. That's Reynolds Showers. So you have passages like Psalm 2-7 where talking about when the Messiah is installed as king at the end of the tribulation at the time of the second coming, he's not king now, he's not king till the end of the tribulation, I will declare the decree, the Lord has said to me, who's talking? The Messiah. He says, I will declare the decree, the decree that God has made already in the past several times. And the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
And so that references the eternal begottenness of the Son in relation to the Father. The Son is also called Mighty God in Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us, what's given? A son is given. Notice the child is born. The son's not born. The son is already the son. For all eternity he's the son. And the son is now given through the incarnation, through the birth of the son. And the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful. Now, I'm going to mention this later on. This word wonderful in the Hebrew is only applied to God, to deity. It's never applied to human beings. He will be called Wonderful. He'll be called Counselor, Mighty God. And then the next phrase has been translated Eternal Father, but that would say it's called the Son, the Father. No, no, it's Father of Eternity which is a way of expressing that he's eternal. He is without beginning or end. So the child that's born, indicating his humanity, and the son who is given are eternal. In Exodus, we're told that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a burning bush. In Exodus 3, 2, we read, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. So this is the angel of the Lord. But when we go to verse 4 of that chapter, So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush. So you have angel of the Lord, Lord, and then God, all talking about the same person who is manifesting himself in this burning bush. Then you go down to verse 6, and we read, Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father. So the angel of the Lord is speaking. He says, I am the God of your father, the Abraham, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I don't know how it could be more clear in these passages that the angel of the Lord is fully God. Not only this, but it's at this time in Exodus that God is, that that Moses asked God, okay, you're going to send me to the Jews. Whom should I say is sending me? And This is given down in verse 14, which I didn't put on a slide. God said to Moses, this is the angel of the Lord, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Well, in John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, that is to the Pharisees, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was imperfect tense, I mean past tense, before Abraham ever existed, I am, present tense. Jesus was saying before, long before Abraham existed, I existed, I am. And he uses that word ego, a me, which for the Pharisees understood what he was saying. When he said I am, they knew he was claiming to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who appeared to Moses in the, in the burning bush and, ad, and identified himself as I am. Because look at what they, their response was in verse 59. They took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple going through the midst of them and so passed by. There's at least three times, I think, in the life of Christ where uh, he says something that is a claim of deity, and they either try to throw him off the cliff, like in Luke 4, uh, for blasphemy, or they're going to stone him, and he just walks through the crowd, and they, they can't catch him. In John five nineteen, Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. He's claiming to be deity. What the Father thinks, I think. What the Father does, I do. And so he's claiming um, full, full deity there. So we go on to look at 
John 10.36. John 10.36, Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and set into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Just these extremely strong statements. Then we have the angel, seven, the angel of the Lord had the same divine nature as the Lord God who sent him before Israel. Jesus Christ declared that he and the Father were one in nature, which we just read in John 10.30, and the Jews realized that by that he was claiming to be God, absolute deity. And this is in John 10.30, he says, I am the, my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones. This is another situation. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered, Many good works I've shown you from my Father, but which of these works do you stone me? And then they say, we don't stone you for a good work, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself out to be God. Eight, the Lord God who sent the angel of the Lord before Israel stated that his name was in him in Exodus twenty three twenty one. Jesus Christ said that he came in his Father's name, John 5.43. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. So the point is he's, again, identifying with the angel of the Lord with God. Ninth, the angel of the Lord was the Son who would be given by God the Father. The scriptures indicate that Jesus Christ is the Son whom God the Father gave to the world. John 3, 16, uh, God loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten Son. Galatians 4, 4, Jesus, I read that Sunday morning. Jesus uh, came um, uh, at the fullness of time. The Son came and 1 John 4, 9. Then we come to the 10th point. The angel of the Lord told Samson's parents, that his name was wonderful in nature. So Isaiah 9.6 says the wonderful is one of those titles, but it, as I pointed out earlier, is only used of deity. It's only used of God. Eleventh, the angel of the Lord accompanied the people of Israel in their exodus journey out of Egypt to the land of Canaan. Okay, all along they're following the angel of the Lord. But what do we find out in 1 Corinthians 10.1? Moreover, brethren, Paul wrote, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers, talking about the Exodus generation, all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, that's the Red Sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So the angel of the Lord is identified as the one who led them, protected them in the wilderness, and Paul says that is Christ. So it goes through this again and again and again. Now that brings us to Judges 13.6. So the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me. So first she identifies him as a man, which is, bit, which is done in other places. A man of God came to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God, very awesome. But I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. Now, we go back a little bit to Judges, to the preceding verses, 13.4, 13.5, 13.7, and we pick up the other question, the other topic that we have to cover to understand what's going on, and this is fundamental. And the preview is they're understanding the Nazarite vow is important. So I want you to turn to uh, Numbers chapter 6. 
Samson is a Nazarite from birth. There are certain things he is prohibited from doing. He broke every one of them. That's why it's so important to understand the Nazarite vow and read that as background to the story because he not only did he break every one of them, but if there is a provision for a sacrifice, if a Naz, someone who's taken a Nazarite vow breaks a Nazarite vow, there are certain sacrifices that they are to make. And, and Samson did none of that. He is He considers the Word of God and everything related to it just to be irrelevant. So Judges 13.4, the angel of the Lord is speaking to his mother and says, Now, therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God." From the womb, and he shall begin, notice he doesn't say complete, he will begin to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. And he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or similar drink. For those of you who are interested in alcoholic beverages in the ancient world, that's a word that means barley beer. He's not to drink wine or beer, nor eat anything unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. So what does the Bible teach about this Nazarite vow? It's part of the Mosaic law. Nobody else, it doesn't apply to any other, any Gentiles in the ancient world. It doesn't apply to anybody in the church. Anybody in the church age who wants to do it is just, it's, it's just, human viewpoint religion. It's just dead works. So what do we learn about it? Number, uh, number 6, 1 to 21, covers the law of the Nazarite. It is a special vow. He takes a special vow, which is stated in the text. It's not clear from the King James translation. Uh, it's a special vow, usually taken for a limited period of time. Not for a whole life. You have Samuel is a Nazarite from birth. Samson's a Nazarite from birth. Some people think John the Baptist was, but I'm not sure. I don't think it specifically states that in the text. So we have at least two that are Nazarites, supposed to be Nazarites their whole life. So they, it is for the purpose of setting themselves apart for the service of God for a limited time period. So they're going to take the vow for a year, two years, five years, a year and a half, whatever the time period is. Now, that's important to keep that in mind. So number six, one and two, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel saying, uh, and say to them, When either a man or a woman consecrates an offering, that's where you have the the term in the Hebrew means to make a special vow. Uh, uh, To take the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself uh, to the Lord. The word for separate is the Hebrew verb nazar, which is where we get nazir, nazarite, all comes from that root word, someone who is separated uh, to the Lord. It means to dedicate or to consecrate, to separate yourself to the service of God. Uh, And as you go through the story, there is a place down in verse 5 where it says, for which he separated himself to the Lord, that's nazar, he shall be holy. That's Kadash, which we have always looked at as being someone who is set apart to the service of God. So you see they're used uh, in a synonymous context there. And it could be a man or a woman. Notice God only has male and female. He, doesn't, he missed the other 123 genders. Speak to the children of Israel and say, when either a man or a woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite, literally it means to makes a special vow to vow. 
Okay, it's it's a Hebraism, and it's it's a repetition of the word uh, to focus our attention on it and to emphasize its seriousness. Third thing is the vow included complete avoidance of anything related to the grape. Vines, leaves, wine, grape juice, grapes, or raisins. Couldn't even touch the skin of a grape. Shouldn't even walk through a vineyard. Also, all alcoholic beverages were proscribed. So you have this word in the... For similar drink is where it, some, a lot of older translations, even some modern ones, call it strong drink. I'm not going to poll you, but most people, when they hear the word strong drink, think of some sort of distilled beverage, vodka, scotch, bourbon, something like that. To, our, to my knowledge, they did, and, and from my study, they did not know how to distill beverages at this time in history. Distilling of beverages does not come along until about five or six hundred years into the church age. But you did have beer. In fact, the, it is known that the slaves in Egypt would carry their lunch with them in a in a some sort of container, and it was beer. Beer has lots of nutrients in it, and so they would take their a jug of beer with them for lunch, and so we, and and God wanted a wanted to have a, uh, a strong drink offering. I've often joked with those who are oinophiles, that's a wine lover, that when Jesus was accommodating himself to the plebeian taste of the masses, he gave them beer. I mean, gave them wine. But when God wanted a drink, he got a beer, a strong drink offering. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. Fourth thing we learn is that the Nazarite was not to cut his hair or her hair. Only the guys would have to shave their, were prohibited from shaving their face. All the days of the vow of his separation, no razor shall come upon his head until the days are fulfilled which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall be holy, then he shall let the locks of his head of his hair grow, hair of his head grow. Fifth, the Nazarite was not to come near a dead soul. That was a strange idiom, but what that means is he's not supposed to go near a, car- a carcass. Of course, that didn't matter to Samuel. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. He shall not make himself unclean even for his father or his mother, for his brother or his sister when they die because his separation to God is on his head. So he, if, if his wife, brother, sister, mother dies, he is not to go near the body. And... Uh, but what happens if he does? What happens if he is helping his mother or his father? Suddenly they fall down and hit their head, and he's trying to, to help them, and they die. Oops. Well, there's a provision in the law. If he unintentionally comes into contact with a dead body, he has to shave his head on the seventh day after, on the eighth day, he has to go to the temple or tabernacle and bring two turtle doves or two pigeons, and they are to be offered one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering. The sin offering is for the sin that's committed and the burnt for breaking his vow. The burnt offering is a reconfirmation of his total uh, dedication to the authority of God. And whatever he's done, so let's say he's got a vow for six months, and it's five and a half months, and his mother dies in his arms, and now he's got to wait a week, shave his head, bring the two turtle doves, two pigeons, have the sacrifice, wait a week, shave his head, start all over. Start counting at one again to... 150 days. So that was 
that was the way in which he is, he's cleansed and then he ha- still has his vow to fulfill. And then uh, later on, as you go through, as you continue through the passage, it just talks about uh, that he also has to bring a male lamb in its first year, so not yet a year old, as a trespass offering. So these are the various offerings that that took place in order to be cleansed if the vow is broken. So this is the vow that that um, that Samson's under, and he breaks it again and again and again. He never never offers anything for it. Never goes to the Lord. He is completely unconcerned with God. He doesn't care. He is so self-absorbed. He is worse than any snowflake of this generation. It's just all about Samson until he loses his strength. And he turns back to God at the end when he's been blinded and he's in prison, and he'll bring the house of Dagon down on the shoulders of the Philistines. But for most of his life, he's just a self-absorbed, rebellious uh and he acts like a teenager the whole time, just in complete rebellion against everybody. And so it's not a pretty picture, but there's a lot of interesting lessons. So we'll go a little further into chapter 13 next time uh, when we come back. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these things and be reminded of your grace, your grace toward Samson, that as rebellious and disobedient as he was, as unconcerned as he was about Uh, any relationship with you and his ignorance of Scripture, yet you were very gracious, you long-suffering, and you're that way with us. And, Father, we just are so thankful for your grace and your mercy and the way you take care of us. And, Father, as we live in a time not dissimilar from that of Samson, we do pray that you would give us the strength, the courage, the wisdom from Scripture to know how to handle ourselves in this this horrible anti-God, anti-Christian culture that is probably only going to get worse. So give us the grace to live in the midst of this and to trust in you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.